What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a librarian, one of the things I work with my students to develop is critical thinking. The skills involved with critical thinking are complex, but one of the things we teach as we help students to learn to critically express and write arguments is how to identify and avoid common reasoning fallacies. I'm sure most of us have studied these kinds of logical fallacies at one time or another in some kind of English or philosophy class. We know fallacies like hasty generalizations, where there is too little evidence cited to support an argument, or the ad hominem attack, where it's the person, not the argument, that is being addressed. The slippery slope presents an argument where one action inevitably leads to another action, or the red herring makes an argument that distracts from the main argument. There are lots of logical fallacies out there, and each one represents a flaw in reasoning. Now, while it can be fun to name them, knowing what they're called is really less important than knowing that when they are present, an argument is less likely to make sense. As a writer, we know that writing that contains logical fallacies is likely to be weaker writing, and what we want in writing is strength. So we really work with our students to understand how to present these arguments without fallacies and with full and valid information. Writing without fallacies is critical, but understanding logical fallacies is also important for readers. We are better at assessing the truths of advertisements or political arguments if we know how logical fallacies might be used, and if we recognize that they can discredit and weaken an argument. Sadly, today in the news and online discourse, there are lots of great examples of logical fallacies. But these offer great opportunities for us to talk with our kids about how arguments are being presented, and help them to develop their own critical reading and writing skills. So here at Rachel's World, we think that maybe it's time to brush up on your understanding of logical fallacies, so you can help your kids develop one of those essential skills that will help them to be critical thinkers. Sometimes a movie comes out before the book. Sometimes it goes the other way, as a book first. Today we bring you a unique twist with a book series based not on a movie but on a computer game. Our first guest today on Worlds Awaiting, children's book author Matthew J. Kirby, talks to Rachel about the Assassin's Creed book series that is based on the computer game of the same name. Matt was approached by the creators of the game to write this series. And now, the print version has a life of its own. Kirby is an award-winning author of books like The Clockwork Three, Icefall, A Taste for Monsters, and the Dark Gravity Sequence series. When he's not writing books, Matt is also a school psychologist. Here's Rachel with Matthew J. Kirby. We're in studio today with Matt Kirby. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. All right. I know that there's a bunch of fans out there who are going to be very excited when we start talking about this. So you wrote a wonderful book called Assassin's Creed Last Descendants, and it's yes. based on, of course, the video game. And I'm sure that there's a lot of video game geeks out there who are just fascinated by this. So let's chat a little bit about sure. how, how yeah. did this book came to be. So start yeah. with that. How, how did this book come to be? Well, Ubisoft, the uh, you know, the the game studio that 
um, develops the Assassin's Creed video games, they basically were looking for a writer to uh, create a new story in book form. I was a known quantity at Scholastic. I'd published several books with them. They knew I was a gamer. They knew that I really liked writing books with historical settings and a speculative twist. So they approached me and they said, would you be interested in writing for Assassin's Creed? And, you know, I was this close to saying I'll do it for free. But, uh, you know, because that was a really exciting to, to be offered that. It was like, well, yes. Like, where do I sign? That's amazing. And there were a couple of reasons why I was drawn to writing something set in that universe. The first was that Ubisoft's approach to it was fairly uh, fairly unique and I don't think is typical. When when you have a corporation that essentially owns this kind of intellectual property, this franchise, this this big thing, it can be difficult to find your own niche within that, to be creative, to do something new. And their approach, though, was quite unique from what I've heard of other people working with other similar corporations. Other writers that I know who have done work for various companies that shall remain nameless have not had this experience. Ubisoft let me know from the beginning, we don't want these books to be books that just sell more games. We're not looking to create a different kind of advertising. We want these to be books that stand on their own as books. We want these to be this a story. Like They're not trying to lead people back to the games. If that happens, that's great. But they just wanted to give people who maybe don't play the games another way to experience the world of Assassin's Creed. And they gave me complete freedom. I couldn't, I couldn't break the rules of their universe, but they let me pick... Like, I created the characters, I created the storyline, I picked the historical settings. Like, they gave me freedom to do what I wanted. So I found it a really enjoyable experience in that regard. But there were two questions that sort of come up in the Assassin's Creed universe that fascinate me anyway. Um, And for people who maybe aren't as familiar with what Assassin's Creed is, you basically have this... um, the secret history, this war that's been waged from the beginning of humanity between an organization now known as the Templars, who believe that, uh, you know, they want the world to be a peaceful, prosperous, happy place. uh, But you can't trust people to get there on their own. You have to guide history, you have to impose some order and some control in order to make sure mankind doesn't give in to its uh, darker nature. And we get to where we want to get. But then you have this other faction that rose up in opposition to the Templars, and they're known as the Assassins, who believe that the way forward, the only way that humanity can attain that same condition of peace and prosperity, the only way we get there is by making sure everyone has their free will. So it's really interesting because there's no good guy and bad guy. A lot of people think of the Templars as bad guys, but they want the exact same thing as the assassins. They just go about it in a different way. And that is an interesting place philosophically because I go back and forth on that. When I do assemblies and speak to kids, 
I ask them, like, who here would be an assassin? And, of course, all the hands go up. And who would be a Templar? Not many hands go up. I say, okay, well, let me, let me, let me raise a, ask a different question. What if you knew that someone was going to use their free will to hurt someone that you love? Would you take away that person's free will to prevent that from happening? And suddenly the faces of these kids in the audience are like, oh, I hadn't thought of that, you know. And so and that's why it's not an easy question. Like in our modern society, we are constantly balancing the need of for safety and security in society with laws like traffic laws. We, you know, we have traffic laws. We have um, criminal law. Like we have things in our society that try and maintain order and try and prevent people from doing bad things. But at the same time, we hold freedom to be sacred as well. And it's a, it's a tension between those. It's a balancing act that is always, like, it's always in flux in modern society. Um, so that appealed to me. The other aspect of Assassin's Creed is this idea of genetic memory. Within Assassin's Creed, there is a technology that allows you to explore a simulation or a virtual reality simulation of your ancestors' memories that have been extracted from your own DNA. So we're all walking around with our previous ancestors. Like, we're all walking around with those memories locked inside us. Well, Assassin's Creed in that universe, they have a way to unlock that. And you can go and experience the past. And that's really fascinating to me, too, because I'm I'm often... Like, I work with kids, and I see the homes that kids come from. And... I see kids who are aware of the homes that they come from, and they're actually able to articulate, like, I don't want to be what my dad was. Like, that, maybe their dad is out of the picture now, maybe, you know, whatever. But this idea that are we defined by where, by where we come from? Are we defined by this past that we didn't have any say over? Are, what, what, or can we choose our own destiny? Can we choose our own path? So those two things right there. So you take... You take free will, you know, that question. You take identity, this question of who we are, what makes us who we are. And then you say, oh, and by the way, you can set that at any point in history. Like the storytelling possibilities are endless. And that's why when they when Ubisoft came to me, it was like, oh, yeah, I am doing this. Like this is amazing. And I had a lot of fun with it, especially because they gave me such freedom and space to kind of explore it in the way that I wanted to explore it. That is one of the things that I really do love about this novel. And I, I, you know, I've played Assassin's Creed, but not that much. And I really love that it kind of extended that world because I think particularly with novels of this nature that go off of movies or video games, that they really need to bring something new to the table. If it's just kind of retelling the same... There's no point to it. Yeah, there's no point to it. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm reliving it. And that's one of the things I really loved about the novel is that it really delved into some of these conundrums, these ethical ideas that you've been discussing in a way that I never felt that the game really was able to... You can't can't do that. that. Yeah, you can't do that and that was game, that yeah. was one of the interesting things because when I first sat down with Ubisoft, uh, you know, I asked them a very basic question, like, "Okay, well, I'm going to be writing this book, so what's it like to be in the Animus? What does that feel like?" Because of course, the games don't address yeah. that. Um, but I asked them, "What is that experience like? What does it feel like?" And 
they just kind of looked at each other around the table and they're like, we've never had to answer that question before. And they basically turned it over to me. So I, I had to come up with it. Like I basically had to invent it um, and describe how I imagined that experience would be. There was a lot of that throughout the writing of this series because it's now a trilogy. We've wrapped up this storyline. But I had to go into space that they've never had to go into with the games. And that's because books do something different. But I saw that as an advantage. Like I could do something different and look at it in a way that the games can't. And that way the books stand on their own as what they are and the games can stand on their own as what they are. And they hopefully both do what they do well. And I I think that's a really important point, particularly as parents and other people are listening, because I know I've had parents that say, oh, you know, I don't want them to read that book because they play the game all the time and they're just, you know, they're just they're just immersing themselves in that and they need to grow out of that kind of thing. And I keep saying no, but they're so different. Yeah, the books are very different. The books are very different and the books extend the world in a way that I actually think extends a reader's experience in a unique way. I'm glad you got that because that was what I was going for. Exactly. I think that that's a really important way to do it. And I think that, you know, particularly parents need to realize that, that, you know, if they see their child playing the game and then reading these books, there's two different things going yeah, on. They're here. two very different <laughs> two experiences. Very different experiences. Yep. And it, it really is healthy. I, I really, I love to talk to people that love Assassin's Creed who've also read your books and the way they play the game and the way they approach the game is very different than yeah. people that haven't read the books. So have you seen that with fans who've ch- talked to you about their experience with both? Yeah, no, there I get I get quite a bit of email actually with fans. I mean, I've had some fans who say cuz the games have been um sort of hit and miss with fans the last few installments of the games. So I've I've actually had some fans who've emailed and say that the books are now their preferred way to engage with the world of Assassin's Creed cuz the games aren't doing it for them anymore. But the but now the books do. So that's been gratifying in a way because I think that's what Ubisoft wanted. Like the, I think they wanted to create a new entry point into this universe that they see as being larger than the games. They see it as a, a compelling universe that you can explore in a variety of ways. And that, I think, is masterful. So thank you so much for well, adding you. to this universe. Are, are there going to be more? Or I'm, I know you finished up this cycle, yeah, but no, are this we going to see more? Finished. I, I hope so. I mean, I certainly would love to see where the characters go from here. This storyline is definitely wrapped up and the characters are in a very different place at the end of it than they started. But I'm curious to see where they could go from here. Because uh, I do think, like I said, the storytelling possibilities are endless. And if they want me to, I'm always happy to dive back into that world. Well, hopefully you will. Let's let's, I, let's I'll cross shout, my fingers. Shout out, I hope to, so shout too. out to all yeah. people who are listening who have anything to do with yeah. this. We want more because I I would love to see that because that's my entry point to the world too. And I, I'm well, sure for many other readers as well. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Children's book author Matthew J. Kirby talking about the creation of his book series, The Assassin's Creed, that's based on the computer game of the same name. Next, Catherine Newton, a mother, grandmother, and member of the Granite School District Foundation Board. She talks with Rachel today about one of her favorite books, Wonder, that was recently made into a movie. It's a story that hits close to home. Her grandson was born with the same condition as the main character in the book, a severe facial genetic deformity called Treacher-Collins syndrome. Here's Rachel with Katherine Newton. 
We're in studio with mm-hmm. Kathy today. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. There is a book that we both share a great love for, and it's Wonder. It is one of those amazing books. Um, has just come out with a major motion picture, and it's just a beautiful, gorgeous book that we both we both passionately love. So tell us, what is it about Wonder that you love? Okay. Um, Wonder's a little story about a little boy named Augie who has a severe genetic facial deformity. And guess what? We have a grandson with the same syndrome. It's called Treacher Collins. Um, it's very rare. It happens in one in every 50,000 births. Um, oddly enough, and you'll love this story, about five months before my daughter gave birth to her Zachary, um, and we did not know he had this condition, someone just showed up at my door and said, I think you should read this book. So I read it, and my daughter read it, and another daughter read it, and then we have Zach. Um, it is... I hope I'm not telling people a book that they've never heard of. I think with the movie, there's been a lot of publicity. And you go into any classroom and ask how many of you have read Wonder and the hands just fly up. Um, it's such an important book. It's a book about differences, about looking different. It's a book about bullying and not bullying and accepting and realizing that we all have something different about us. And it's just a book that our family is passionate about. We love because this is our little boy. This is our Zach, who's now four years old, um, living in Virginia. And every time we just we see this book, we we see Zach, and it it's it's a conversation now. People are are talking. Children are reading the book. Teachers are talking about it. It's a way to bring up the subject of bullying and acceptance um, in a very non-threatening way in a school, rather than waiting for an incident to happen. A teacher can assign this book. Kids can read it, and they can have a discussion about it. So I could talk about Wonder Forever. I won't. Well, but. well let's, let's do. We, we, have, we have a whole segment here we can just talk about this wonderful book. It, I love that you share a, a very personal connection with this book. And I, I think that, that that makes it a much more deeply passionate book for you. But this is a deeply passionate book for so many people because even if we don't share this syndrome or don't have a grandson that has this exact same thing, we all share that ability to understand that we, we're different. We stand mm-hmm. out in some way. Sometimes it's very physical and very obvious as it is with Augie in this book and with your grandson. Um, you can very visually see mm-hmm. the things that, right. that are challenges. But for some of us, they're inside. You know, there are wounds that that aren't showing or disabilities that aren't as obvious. And having that conversation and having that ability to say, look, we all are different. Some are visible, some are not. And how do we sensitively deal with this is is such a wonderful thing, particularly when it comes to children today. So have you seen this book being used in that way? Do you, you feel like it is is progressing these conversations in a fundamental way? Absolutely. It, it's it's being taught in schools. And the really wonderful thing about the movie that was just made is that it, they gave it a PG rating. So teachers can take it into schools and have a conversation after viewing it. Um, and I think that was very purposefully done. Um, uh, one of the things I love about the book, too, is that it gives you different vantage points. Augie talks his sister Via talks. You get to see what it's like to be the older sister to a child with a, a, a difficulty, um, to get into someone else's head, to understand where they're coming from. 
So, I yes, I think it's being used a lot. And isn't it interesting? This book's been out for, what, five years or yeah. so? It is continues to stay in the New York Times, number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and it has not gone into paperback format yet. It is just selling. And kids just everywhere. I I cannot think of maybe short of Harry Potter. I can't think of another book that you could ask a child, have you read it? And the answer is is yes. So it is. It's definitely getting conversations going. And as I said, in a safe way. Why wait for a bullying episode to happen in a school? Let's talk about it before. Let's read this book. How would we handle this? How would we do it? And you're so right. Augie's differences are very obvious. But we all have things inside that are painful and difficult. And they are our differences. And how do we learn to accept one another? Particularly in the society as it is today, we we see so much dissonance and um, fighting going on mm-hmm. in in politics and and also just on the streets in many ways mm-hmm. and and it, it feels like I think we aren't getting along as a mm-hmm. society and I think kids really see that I think that that affects them more sometimes than we would give them credit for yes. that they see these types of things on the news or they hear of these types of things or they hear their parents talking about things that um, so deeply affects these children and and being able to have a really safe, wonderful place to talk about these things, particularly one that is so well written. I I, I love Wonder for that very reason, because not only is it a a beautiful personal book that we can connect to, but literarily, I mean, it is... It is stunning. It, <laughs> it, is. it is so well done with the different points of view, which is very tricky as a writer, very tricky to do. And being able to balance those points of view and extend those points of view and see progress over the characters throughout those different points of view, just it, it is so stunningly done. I, I think that for me, both on a personal level and a literary level, I just think, wow, what a well done book. Well, and it, it, Your readers may not know how this book started, but the author was with her two children at an ice cream stand, and there was a little boy there with Treacher Collins, and her children just kind of exploded, like, here's this child that looks very different, kind of scary, and she whisked them away and took them home. And when she got home, she said, that was the worst way I could have handled that. We should have talked to this family. We should have gotten to know them. And... So she determined then that she was going to write the book and how exciting that she did. I mean, maybe if she would have talked to them, she wouldn't have had the the motivation. But that was her motivation of how poorly she handled the situation. And she didn't want others having to do that. And, you know, we find that's true with our Zach, that just talk to them. Just, you know, Zach will tell you about his glasses. He'll tell you about his hearing devices. Um, He just wants to be a kid. He doesn't want to be looked at and stared at and pointed. He just wants someone to, to be his friend and talk to him. So it's 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 great for that reason. Opening that door is is really important because I think as human beings, we can feel awkward. We can, particularly when someone's not mm-hmm. like us or we don't understand it, mm-hmm. um, we, we feel awkward partly because we don't want to offend them right. or we don't want them to think that we don't understand. And we feel like, oh, if I go up to this person and, and try to talk to them, I'm, you know, going to make a fool of myself or and I'm you know I'm going to offend them or I'm going to say something wrong and I, I think this book I love that sense that it's not about that it's just about making an effort
effort. And even if we say a really horrible, stupid thing, it, it it's okay. And, you know, we can say, oops, that was just really not the best thing to do. Or I, I'm sorry, I don't understand this. Or I'm sorry, I'm still trying to learn and understand where you're coming from. But if we don't even take that step, right. we, we've lost a rich, wonderful experience with a wonderful human being of, of such depth and experience and and a new friend. We Absolutely. really have lost that. And to me, that's the basic theme of wonder. I, I agree. And, and I think also it, there's tools in there for, I mean, obviously the, the underlying message is bullying is horrible, unacceptable. But there's tools in the book for how to defend, how to put down your foot and say, we're not going to do this to this child, to this person. And and I think children, not only do they not want to bully, but they want those tools. They want to know how to handle a situation. And I think it gives it gives you that. Yeah, I, I think the structure of the book is such that it shows all of those different kinds of perspectives and allows us to see you know, how we can step up and how we can say, you know, this isn't right um, and still protect people and help um, help others understand where we're coming from. And that is so empowering for kids, it particularly. Is. It is. And again, it's in a safe environment where emotions aren't raw. They're not on the surface. You can just you can you can talk your way through it. So I it's a book that I just I think every child should be reading. And they are. That's the good news. I know. And it's one of those wonderful books that has captured the imagination and hearts of so many. And mm-hmm. I think it will continue to do so, particularly with the movie. I think that will just continue to do that because it is so well written and because it is so heartfelt and, and joyful and just provides us such a a unique slice of life that you have a very personal connection mm-hmm. to. And I appreciate you coming in today and, and sharing your passion for wonder with us today. Thank you. Catherine Newton, Mother and Grandmother, Talking About Wonder, a book about learning to accept one another's differences. We finish up the show with a book review, The Reader, a young adult novel by Tracy Chi, given by Mindy Hale, teen librarian at the Orion Public Library in Utah. The Reader by Tracy Chi is the first in a planned trilogy set in a world where the written word is so forbidden so restricted that the practice of reading and writing is virtually unknown outside a secret society of magicians, librarians, and assassins. Into this world is born Cephia, who was clandestinely taught the rudiments of the alphabet by her parents before they were brutally murdered. In the reader, Cephia has been on the run since discovering her father's mutilated body six years ago. Traumatized by the discovery, she is bent on revenge, but she must first rescue her aunt, Nin, while evading the people who killed her parents. She doesn't know who these people are, but she does know what they want, a mysterious rectangular object she inherited from her parents. As Sephia travels, she gradually puzzles out what the object is and what it does. It is a book, and it holds some very valuable information. As she uncovers its mysteries, she discovers that she herself has some powerful and mystical abilities. Along her journey, she rescues a fierce, nearly feral boy who is an almost supernaturally skilled fighter, but is also mute. Together on their quest, they encounter and overcome obstacles and mysteries while growing closer and more united in their destinies. This book is a fun read. It's a compelling adventure that's also meticulously paced, deftly plotted, 
and peppered with quote-worthy prose. Chi skillfully interweaves several storylines while interjecting a hidden message in the text that savvy readers will pick up on and enjoy. I recommend this book to readers who like books about books like Ian Cart or Ink and Bone, readers who like questing fantasy adventures with strong and highly capable protagonists, and readers who like their adventures to be underpinned by greater thought-provoking questions. Mindy Hale, teen librarian at the Orem Public Library, reviewing The Reader, a young adult novel by Tracy Chi. We'll look forward to more young reader book reviews in the future. For a full collection of book reviews, check out the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in weekdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.